House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, and I am at the controls. And in the east coast of the country, from the beautiful city of Boston, we've got David North Martino making the martinis. I'm right back there doing that. Hey, Al, how you doing? <laughs> I am I am delicious today. Awesome. Yeah, it's Friday, you know. Um, so, yeah, another beautiful day. And it's beautiful. Yeah, and speaking of that, we've got a beautiful <laughs> guest. We've actually got, um, you know, he's an author, a speaker, a dancer, he's everything. Um, <laughs> so, so joining us, we've got Mark Leslie from the east part of Canada. Um, thank you for being here. Oh, I'm uh, delighted to be here, and I am dancing in the hopes that I will get one of those martinis that I've heard about. Yeah. I'll send one right down. Oh, thank you. I mean, I'm just, just a little bit north of you. I can get it from you. Yeah, yeah. The, the martini can make it across the border, but the martino can't. <laughs> wow. So, Mark, you, know, you, you are so involved in the writing, speaking world and consulting and all of this stuff, um, but you look really young. Um, so, no, I mean, you've accomplished a lot. Photoshop. Yeah, well, of course, I was going to say, but I'm trying to be nice here. We've got to promote this. And, but you, so where did this all come from for you? Like, how did you know this was what you wanted to do? I think I've known I wanted to be a storyteller my entire life. Uh, I've always had a, a crazy imagination. And, uh, I mean, I was always afraid of the monster under my bed and, and always really intrigued by what if and the paranormal and, and ghost stories and UFOs and all those things. And so whenever I set to, um, you know, to put anything down on paper and writing, it ended up being an imaginative what if. So when I was looking at what I wanted to do, my mom was really practical in her advice. And anytime she saw a writer, because I, I, I wanted to be a writer, and anytime she saw a writer on a TV show or whatever, and she'd say, hey, look, you notice he's eating spam? Uh, and that's all a writer can afford to eat, so so you better get a good job. It, yeah, they're laughing, but I was like, I was panicked because I, all I wanted to do was write, and I'm like, well, I can't live off of writing, so I better get a good job. And so I I uh, I wanted to, to have a, a career that was associated with writing, and when I was in university, I got a part-time job as a bookseller at uh, a chain uh, bookstore in, in Ottawa, Ontario, and thought, okay, uh, while I, you know, uh, while I starve as a writer, I'll at least work in the industry and I'll be close to books because I love books and I love reading. And so in 1992 was the year after, after years of rejections, I had my very first short story published, and that was the year I started working in the book industry. And, and, and I've loved the fact that I've been very fortunate that my career has grown on both sides. You know, I've starved as a bookseller and starved as a writer all the way through. So. <laughs> but it's been, I've been really, really fortunate because I've had a, an opportunity to grow up on both sides of, the, uh, of, of the, the field, right? The creation aspect and then the business aspect. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm saying this mainly because there's a lot of writers, and you probably know this, of course, you're, but there's a lot of writers that are not really into or very good at promoting or being into the business part of books. It's very seldom you get both with one person. Yeah, you're right. It is, um, it, it, and it's funny because you know, as writers, we're passionate about telling our stories, and 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 there's this mystique, this uh, misinformed mystique that there was a time when all you had to do was pound on a typewriter and hand your manuscript in to a, a publisher, and then and, and you'd never have to do anything else, and they would do everything for you. Well, that was never really the case uh, in in most cases, anyways. And uh, and that's the thing that a lot of uh, writers don't realize is so. Now, for example, I mean, there's never been a better time to be a writer. There's never been more opportunity. When I started, there was one way of doing it, pretty much, which was you know submit your stories and hope you get published in magazines and anthologies. And if you build your name up big enough, maybe one day an agent will take you seriously, and and then you can have a book contract with a real publisher. And um, and that's changed, obviously. Uh, there's, there's more paths. There's more opportunities. There's not as much gatekeeping because with digital publishing, you know, with the advent of the Kindle and, 
and the ability for writers to be able to, uh, you know, self-publish their work to platforms, they've opened themselves up to amazing opportunities where their books and stories can be available in 190 countries around the world, you know, within an hour. And the thing that they failed, you know, it's easy to push a button and publish, and there's so much about the craft of writing, like how to write a good story, how to work with an editor, all those things to make it the best it can be. But there's not really a lot out there in terms of, okay, now what? (laughs) Because one of the things that a publisher did um, was they would uh, sell it to the bookstores, and the bookstores would put it in a particular spot, and, and they took care of that aspect of it. But when now, uh, I'd like to say the slush pile has moved from the back room of a publisher to the online catalog near you. And so so you're, you're now waiting for the discoverability, but just in a different spot. So you're, in, in you're getting rejections by nobody looking at your story or giving you one-star reviews or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But those ones I always hunt down and take care of. <laughs> but but do you think it's it, so do you think it's better not having so much of a gatekeeper on like i like the access for people and and anybody to be able to put their art out there but i also feel that we're inundated with a lot of garbage too yeah we are but we we always have been uh i mean i'm sorry but uh, i don't need to to read a, a biography of of pseudo celebrities like the the kardashians right like that's that's more garbage than yeah, <laughs> than most well, of the yeah. stuff and that's being published by big publishers so just 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 because it comes from new york doesn't mean it's good um but i think i look at so i've had i've had experience in in the book industry and uh where people would would, would bring their self-published work in into the bookstores and yeah okay some some aren't ready for prime time but then other ones, and, and I'm thinking of Canadian author uh, Terry Follis, who uh, you know got rejections from publishers for his very first uh, book that he wrote, and then he went out and released it via um, a podcast, and, and he was using like a, a podcast feed to, to read his story, and he was getting listeners from around the world about his book about <laughs> a satirical novel of Canadian politics, which, I mean, you know, nobody would ever want to read anyways because it's just such a weird <laughs> But But the best laid plans, um, I found out about this when it was self-published, and I was working in a bookstore, and I ordered it non-returnable because it was a print-on-demand book from a, you know, from a vanity uh, uh, outfit. Right. But I had listened to it and thought, oh, my God, this guy is brilliant. It reminds me of some of John Irving's early work, The Humor, and uh, some of Robertson Davies' work, which I love. And I thought, oh, my God, i got to have him come into my bookstore. Terry ended up winning uh, uh, an award uh, for, for that book, um, uh, Stephen Leacock Medal for Humor. And then he got an agent, and then uh, eventually uh, Penguin Random House in Canada uh, picked, picked up his books. And uh, I think he's working on his eighth book with them now, and... There was a TV series based on that first book, uh, a mini series on uh, CBC here in Canada, and also a stage play uh, adapted from the best laid plans. And so I look at something like that and think, had Terry not had access to be able to self-publish this work, um, the literary world in Canada would not have been uh, privileged enough to have access to read and enjoy his work in so many different formats. Just think of that first book and all the adaptations. And so... Sometimes the gatekeeping, and, and this and this would happen um, regularly, is a really really good book would uh, would get all the way to an editorial board, and because of the amalgamation of the, all the major publishers, there's only five big ones right now. There would be probably hundreds and hundreds of great books that don't get published every year because they're like, oh well, we already have a satirical uh, novel, uh, you know, contemporary satire, and we only have room for one. <laughs> so, so what I love about this. And, and I think is is the democratization of the slush pile, meaning, okay, uh, you know, let's let's assume that they're they're doing their best work and they're getting it edited and it's actually ready for prime time. Um, let's let the readers decide uh, what they want. Uh, and and I love that it's in in podcasting, in publishing, uh, you can go as niche as you want, and and there's going to be some ideal readers there for you, most likely, provided you've done a good job of putting together your best work. So what do you think the answer is then? Because so many, uh, but there are really good writers that are, that are self-publishing that are not going through the big publishers, or they go through small publishers, right? And there's no real promotion. So is is there a key to success for someone that's 
you know, it doesn't have a whole lot of people behind them. Uh, I like to say, uh, as I've said in the seven P's of publishing success, three of the key P's are patience, <laughs> practice, and persistence. Um, it really is a matter of persistence and, and, you know, continuing to work at your craft and picking yourself up and going again. But I think the other thing that's really, really critical, and, and so many writers forget this, is thinking of their audience first. I mean, so they, they, have, a, they, they have a book. They have something that they've written. They really, really need to hone in on their audience. And anyone who says, oh, this book is good for everyone, you're sadly mistaken. I'm so sorry. It may end up being a book that lots of people love, but you really need to hone in on, on, on that, uh, that core reader. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, when Stephen King, uh, who, a couple, I think you've probably heard of him. Uh, he's an up-and-coming writer. But um, he addresses constant reader. Constant reader is one person he's writing to. He's referring to Tabitha King, his wife. And when he writes a book, he wants to please Tabby, and he's got her in mind the whole time. Will Tabby like this? Will Tabby hate this? She's a constant reader. Now, fortunately, he focuses on that one reader. He's done okay for himself doing that, right? Like that narrow, narrow focus. Um, another example that I'll use is um, the first book I pitched with Dundurn, which is Canada's largest independent publisher. It was Haunted Hamilton, Hamilton, Ontario being uh, the town of a city I was living in. And uh, when I pitched the book to Dundurn, I, I, I did kind of like a Venn diagram uh, pitch. And I said, well, this book will, will uh, appeal to folks who um, love ghost stories because it's ghost stories of Hamilton. But then there's another circle of people who are people who are passionate about their city and love their city and just want to read anything about their city. And then the third core are people who love history, especially local and Canadian history, because a lot of uh, the War of 1812 and stuff like that uh, factors into it, and you can't tell a good ghost story without getting into history. So wh when I pitched it, I focused in on the overlap of all those three demographics and said, that's my target reader, and that's who this book is for. Um, and I think writers really need to take that exercise, whether they're traditionally published or they're self-published, uh, and understand who their core reader is and focus on them. Uh, and that's probably the thing a lot of writers are not spending enough time doing. Right, right. Now, it seems to me um, that you write a lot of horror, a lot of scary sort of books. Um, what, what draws you to that? Uh, fear. Uh, I'm afraid of everything. <laughs> no, you laugh, but it's so true. I, uh, I'm afraid of the dark. I really, truly am. When, when my son was little, uh, I was so terrified he was going to come into the room and say, um, you know, Dad, the boogeyman's in my room. Instead of telling him there's no boogeyman, I would go, okay, come on, hide under the covers with me. The covers are magic. They'll protect us. Right? Um, I, I've always been uh, frightened of, thing, of the unknown and always curious uh, at the same time. Kind of like, uh, you know, being afraid of heights but enjoying going on roller coasters and stuff like that, right? So I get a, I get a charge out of it. And, and I guess my writing has always, always wanted to explore those dark crevices. Um, I think one of the, a good friend of mine, Kevin J. Anderson, I was talking to him early during this pandemic and we were talking about the, the importance of fiction, uh, during stressful times and dealing with adversity. And he says the one thing you can do in fiction that's brilliant. It's like really bad things happen to people, like people you love. Really bad things happen in the world. In your fiction, you can control it, and you can make good things happen, right? You can you can send them to the to, to the brink of of disaster, and then you can things can get redeemed, and you're in control of this world. Uh, and I was like, yeah, you're right. Uh, in, in a lot of fiction, for example, I mean, a lot of my horror. Um, well, not for the short stories, because you can kind of get away with murder there easily, but with longer works where people are invested in them, yeah, usually the good guys win, right? Uh, good prospers over evil. Um, and, and that's, uh, for, for at least for my longer fiction, that's, uh, that's been a constant thing. Yeah. I, but when you, you, you say this comes from a spot where you have fear, that you, you do have a, a relationship with, with, with fear, um, so in a way, you're exposing some of yourself. You're putting your own emotion into it. It's not just a story that you can have a happy ending to. So with that being said, um, where, where does the comfort or where does the confidence come that allows you to expose something in, in a book like that 
that anybody can read, and nowadays anybody can comment on. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that's a scary thing. I remember interviewing uh, Canadian author Julie Chernada uh, after her first book came out. She had a, a background writing biology textbooks before she did her first piece of fiction. And after having read, uh, worked as a professional writer for years, it was the novel that terrified her the most. And she said, and I'll never forget this, it's like standing naked on the front lawn uh, to have a book, a fiction a book out there because it's not researched uh, material and and yeah every every bit of fiction uh, is like that so so my mom uh, God bless her but my mom is always funny because when she reads a story uh, she doesn't even uh, doesn't even think that that my characters are, are made up people which which they mostly are although there's a lot of me and many of them but she's like and then you did this and then you did that I'm like no no mom it's fiction that wasn't me I didn't do any of these things it's like this is a character um, but the reality is a lot of the a lot of the characters often start with imagining myself in the in the position and then adapting into another uh, perspective, and and there is a lot of exposure, uh, especially in fiction, but even in in in, in my nonfiction, uh, you know, like the, the tutorial stuff and helping other writers, I do share a lot of personal uh, anecdotes. I've even had editors go, "No, you don't want to go that deep. <laughs> you don't want to go that far." But I have found uh, through my podcast as well as through some of my writing is that. Every time I worry, I was like, oh, I think I put a little bit too much of myself in there. I think I revealed a little bit too much. I found that those are the things that resonate with readers because somebody else will come back and go, oh, my God, me too. I didn't realize that. But when you said it, I, I, I immediately connected with you. So what are we doing as writers? Uh, what we really want at the, at the deepest, most profound level is to connect with a, another human, right? I have a story I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you, like, you know, like in, in the cave, I'm going to tell you about, you know, the, the cave drawings. Is, I'm going to tell you how I captured this, this meat that we're eating, right? I, and, and that's a story. And, and that's, that's, you know, fundamental uh, storytelling going all the way back uh, to its roots. But when, when we put it on paper or in other, in other guises and someone else consumes it, it's us connecting with another human. And that, I think, is why... It's terrifying when I share, um, but it's also so exhilarating when a right, when the right reader picks it up and connects with what it, what it was that I created. Now we were talking earlier before we went on air that uh, we actually shared uh, pages in an anthology, a short fiction ghost anthology. Yes, and uh, I was uh, I was just wondering. You write short fiction, you write novels. Do you prefer short fiction? Do you prefer, prefer writing in the longer form? Um, oh, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, so the, the thing I, I like about short fiction is it, I can get, uh, I can exercise those, those little demons a lot faster <laughs> uh, than uh, they don't need to be as complicated. The other thing, and I learned this from Jeffrey Deaver and uh, his short story collection, Twisted, is you have a contract with a with a reader in a in a, a novel length work, like right? a longer, like you know, when you're looking at anything beyond twenty thousand, thirty thousand, forty thousand words. And that contract is that God, I'm investing all this time. I better <laughs> I better have a happy ending, or the good guys better win, or you know, uh, something like that. Uh, with short fiction, all bets are off, right? You don't have to have a sense of character preservation. You can play with the reader. You can trick them. You can twist things. You can do, and I and a lot of my short fiction is uh, Twilight Zone style, just like just twisted and weird, strange fiction because the world doesn't need to make sense. Um, it, it, it's like um, uh, almost like poetry in many ways. It can be experimental, and I can just paint a scene, and the whole purpose of the story is just to get this one element across or this one visual uh, imagery that I want to I want to portray. Uh, I don't know, David. Do you find the the same thing? Yeah, I find that um, I, I do like to delve into the, you know, the short fiction allows you to have that, uh, you know, narrow focus. You get to really look into uh, uh, just that, that, that story, that character. And when you do novels, you know, you get to breathe a bit. Yeah, yeah. You can also kind of, you can um, ruminate a little bit longer on some, some things, right? <laughs> Well, Absolutely. I, I would imagine that um, the big difference would be the development of the characters. Uh, yeah, well, the development of the characters on the page, 
right? You may still uh, dedicate time in your head to that character, but it never shows up on the page. Whereas in a novel, you have more opportunity to, I don't know, to pull out the photo albums and go, hey, and tell, let me tell you about this and let me tell you about that. Whereas in a short story, you're like, no, I don't have time for your photo albums. Let's just get cut to the chase. Yeah, get to the blood. Um, <laughs> As it were. Yeah. Fear and Longing in Los Angeles. Okay, so that's the Canadian Werewolf Book 3. So this is a part of a series, obviously. So what is a Canadian Werewolf? So a Canadian Werewolf was um, me falling in love with uh, New York on my very first visit to New York and walking uh, down through Battery Park and just, I don't know what it was, I, I, I imagined... Something. Oh, and it was based on it was it was based on an anthology I was writing a short story for, and the anthology was themed. And 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 I'm not sure if you remember seeing the the call for this years ago. It was uh, the monster within, and they were looking for short stories where they didn't where they looked at the 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 man behind the monster. And so as I was walking through Battery Park, I was thinking, imagine I don't know why, but this is why I imagine these things. Imagine I was a werewolf and I lived in the city. And how would, where would you go uh, to be a wolf at night? You turn into a wolf. What would happen? What would happen if you woke up naked in Battery Park with a bullet hole in your leg and a taste of human blood in your mouth? And, of course, you have no memory of what it was like, what you did the night before as a wolf. How would you deal with that? And so the story uh, that I wrote called This Time Around was about a, a man living in Manhattan who does that. And, and the whole purpose of the story is to find some clothes and to get to this morning appointment across the city. Like, how is this naked man going to solve this problem? Uh, and so in that story, I had him, he has enhanced powers, so he has enhanced senses and strength because of the, the wolf blood coursing through him. And, 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 and it resolves that story. But a good friend of mine, uh, Sean Costello, who's a horror novelist, he read the story and said, this is awesome, what happens next? And I said, well, nothing, it's over. But then he kept bugging me and prompting me. And I said, well, well I thought, well, what if I explored the rest of his day? Um, and so A Canadian Werewolf in New York was the novel that I first started to write in 2006 uh, for NaNoWriMo. I finally finished it in 2014 and published it in 2016. And it is the, the life, uh, day in the life of Michael Andrews, uh, uh, you know, a small-town Canadian uh, like, like myself, very much based on me, and maybe there's a wish fulfillment because he's a writer. He's a successful writer, so he's a little bit of a celebrity, and he's living in Manhattan trying to deal with the side effects of being a wolf, and he happens to have grown up reading Spider-Man comics uh, like me and uh, feels that with great power comes great responsibility, and he uses these powers to help others. And so um, that was a fun uh, novel to explore, and and it, I, I didn't even realize I was writing urban fantasy. <laughs> I called it a humorous thriller. Uh, when I first published it, and I even, uh, you know, I even used a cover that was not applicable, like uh, because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize that it was uh, until readers said, "Oh my God, this reminds me the the, the humor in this reminds me of uh, uh, Dresden uh, from Jim Butcher, uh, the Harry Dresden," and and I was like, "What? <laughs> I've never read any of his stuff. I should check it out." And I'm like, "Oh, hey, wow, maybe this is urban fantasy." Uh, even, but you never really see him as a wolf. You only see him as a human. So that was an important aspect. So I think I, I, I eventually worked with somebody um, to help revise, revise the blurb. And I came up with um, uh, Alpha Wolf, Beta Human, Big Apple. And that's, the, that's sort of the premise of that first book. I, so to me... Um... I mean, I, I wake up naked in New York all the time. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, you know. who doesn't? Yeah, who doesn't? Yeah. It's what you do. It's what one does in New York. I mean, uh, hopefully without all the bullet holes, but, you know. Yeah. But when you say that, it, you know, it came to you from, you know, your first visit to New York. You fell in love with it. You started thinking about um, what a werewolf would do or what a human that had this would do or if they woke up. So are you, in essence, writing New York as, as um, a character? Like, is the scene a character as well? Yeah, and you know, it's such a great question. I was, um, fortunately, I've been, since I started writing that, I, I, was, I was in New York twice. But I've now been to New York, you know, dozens and dozens of times and spent plenty of time exploring different neighborhoods. And what I love about that city is... Each neighborhood, each each area has such character and such vibrancy and such community 
It reminds me of these little pockets of small towns, uh, all nestled together and interacting with one another. It's such a beautiful thing. Um, so that is, uh, in many ways, it's like that. But I remember early on, I reached out to Dennis Hamill. Now, he's a, he's a, a novelist, but he's a columnist for a New York a newspaper. And I loved his writing, and I had only been to Battery Park uh, once during you know, the middle of the afternoon, and so my scene was set like, you know, at the crack of dawn. And and I reached out to him, as, as you sometimes just reach out to people you admire and said, hey, you, 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 you're for, like, because he writes about Brooklyn, and Brooklyn is a character in all his stories. And it's just, I fell in love with Brooklyn reading his novels. And, and I asked him, like, if, you know, what's it like in this time of day in this neighborhood? Would you know? And he came back and he shared so many insights as to what, what would be, what you would see, smell, and hear. And then he gave me this uh, unsolicited writer's advice that I use to this day and I adore. And I even added it into the book because I had my character reach out to Dennis Hamill, and then I had Dennis Hamill <laughs> provide him the same advice uh, as a mentor. And it was uh, go and take a walk with your character. Walk down, you know, walk through Battery Park with the character and just listen to what your character uh, notices. Uh, what do they talk about? What do they see? What do they pay attention to? What do they attend to? And whenever I get stuck in writing, I will take my character for a walk. And people may look at me strange as I'm talking to myself, but uh, I always well, find it's New York. A, that's <laughs> well, not New York. That's true. They, they think maybe I have earbuds in and I'm just on a call. Uh, but I, it's just it's such a great exercise because I know what I see, but I go, well, well, well wait a second. If I were in his shoes or her shoes, how would I perceive this same thing? And you go, oh. And then you see something, and then that that becomes part of the story. It's very interesting. Um, and that kind of brings up, I was talking, we were talking to another writer yesterday. This author brought uh, this, this idea up that, uh, about inner monologue. And I was just wondering, um, do you, when you write, do you have an inner monologue in your head when you write? Or is it more images and symbols that you're seeing and that you're, you're trying to uh, translate into words? Oh, that, I think that's understandable. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a it's a great question. I think I mean sometimes I'll I'll visualize something, but oftentimes it's a monologue. It's always a monologue. I mean I can't shut off the inner monologue uh, that's that's going on there. Uh, you know, like in in my mind, like my day, it, it's like a comic book, and there's the little the little square boxes about at the top of the comic that are kind of explaining. <laughs> it's the um, uh, uh, dude from uh, Twilight Zone, Rod Serling, stepping out and saying, picture this, a man is going to make breakfast. Like uh, any of those things. Like I can't turn that inner monologue off. So I, all I do when I'm writing is I just, I just point it. I point it at the thing that I want to write about. <laughs> well, as long as it doesn't start telling you to shoot people or something. <laughs> well, so far, so far so good. I've been able to kind of suppress those ones. Really different concept for me because I've, I've done... Uh, several books, but they're all true crime or they're they're nonfiction, you know, cults and all all the things like that. So I don't see the characters in my head, and I'm not listening to them, and I'm not going for a walk with them. Um, how, so explain that part of of what a character is to you. And I say that because a lot of the authors will say, you know, they describe them as their children or their friends or family. What is the character to you? Yeah, they're they're like the imaginary friends uh, who let me in on their lives. <laughs> uh, I was talking to my partner uh, about this just last night because she said, "Is it is it true that writers you're actually you know you go to write something and you have these plans for where a story's going to go?" And no, 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 the writer uh, the, the characters had a different idea than I did. And they took me in a different direction. She goes, you know, that, that's bull, right? That, that's not true. <laughs> like, it's you. You're controlling them. I was like, no, no, they wanted to go there. I just listened. I just was writing down their dialogue, and their dialogue happened to go in that direction, uh, which, which is kind of a weird thing to explain. But it, it hap it's happened in two of my – in a novella in the Canadian Werewolf series, and it happened in Fear and Longing, uh, where I had these preconceived plot ideas and go, okay, I need this to happen and this to happen so that this can happen. And while I was trying to force my characters and puppets to go through these motions, they developed their own sense of what, was, what they wanted. And it was kind of like, oh, God, no, I guess I have to explore that now. Okay. Um, so I'll just follow them for a while, uh, which, which turned into, I mean, ironically, Fear and Longing in Los Angeles, I, I had to split it 
and and do a a different story arc resolution for that book, and then a longer story arc that's not going to con- uh, not going to get completed till the second, the next the next book in that series. Hmm. So in that book, in fear and longing, um, Michael Andrews, who is that? So uh, Michael Andrews is the main character. He's the wolf uh, that uh, only um, uh, very few people know that he's actually a wolf. So it's not it's in a world that's like ours, and he is in love with this woman he met years ago doing research uh, for for uh, for uh, the occult uh, years ago. They fell in love. Uh, they ended up splitting up, and they became friends. And Michael's always been in love with her and knows because he can sense, sense her. She still loves him, but she can't trust men, and she can't have a relationship. And so he's always wanted more. And, then, and, and at the beginning of Fear and Longing, his a- agent, who, who always mocks him and makes fun of him because he's an alpha, uh, well, he's a, a beta human, <laughs> he's a pushover, uh, he's like whining and moping about this woman. And he's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm sending you to L.A., you're gonna. You're, I've got you a job as a script consultant on. Uh, you know they're they're adapting your latest book into a movie, and you're gonna be there for three weeks, and you're gonna be working there, and you're gonna get this damn woman out of your head, and that's where the longing comes from. And then he's in L.A. on the set, and the fear comes from this um, hate group uh, known as the Proud uh, Fighters for America, and this hate group is in L.A. and they're causing all kinds of. And, and a lot of the a lot of the scenes were inspired by the Purge. You know, they're in these costumes and masks, and they're just terrorizing uh, neighborhoods. Uh, they're, they're terrorizing um, um, minority groups. They're terrorizing LGBTQ members, um, all of these things. And, of course, Michael, being the Boy Scout, can't help but want to get involved and help. But he also falls in love with a woman uh, while he's there, which is what he was looking to do, is just to find some distraction. But, of course, she may be tied uh, to this hate group. So he's finding himself getting involved uh, deeper and deeper in, in this really uh, dark aspect of, of, of L.A. I just want to go back just a second to uh, your inner monologue, because uh, I had wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, a lot of writers like to write with music, like a big wall of sound, and, yeah. and some like to uh, write in total silence. And I find that for me, because of how I, you know, the voices in my head get drowned out right? by, by <laughs> yeah. too much, too much um, uh, uh, rhythm or lyrics or anything like that, uh, I, I have to listen to, like, ambient music. I'm just wondering how it was for you when it, when it comes to uh, when you're composing uh, prose. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Now, I mean, music is always in my head. I love music. I'm a very musical person, but I cannot listen to music with lyrics because the lyrics get in the way. Uh, they get into my writing. And so it's ambient music, it's soundtrack music, it's classical music, it's, you know, um, electronic uh, music. It, it, and it's, it's kind of interesting because uh, I, I'm an earworm kind of person, mm. and, uh, and music will make its way into the book. So I'm a huge fan of, of the Canadian rock band Rush. And, uh, and of course, there are so many Easter eggs for Rush fans in my books, especially in, in, the, in the latest one where, uh, where, where uh, Michael reflects on how something reminds him of a song. Now, it's really, really, uh, you've got to be careful, right? You can't use lyrics in your books mm. uh, for obvious copyright reasons. But I, I was lucky. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Alicia Witt. Are you guys familiar with Alicia Witt, the actress and oh, yeah. uh, musician? Yeah, I do. Yes, I mean I she's been in everything, I, right? Yeah. Um, so she's an indie musician, and and I supported uh, one of her last Kickstarter projects on a project uh, where and one of the one of the levels I supported her at was she wrote a custom song for me, and I used oh. that song to propose to my uh, fiance, uh, my girlfriend at the time, now my fiance, and uh, Alicia was uh, kind enough. She was on tour. She was coming through Toronto, Ontario, and it was on my 50th birthday. She was in Toronto that um, I said, hey, could you perform it live, and I'll propose to her when you, after you perform the song, which is called Liz, which is a beautiful song she wrote. And so I also asked her if it would be okay if I included her in Fear and Longing in Los Angeles as a character because I wanted Michael to go visit her at the Hotel Cafe where I knew she played when she lived in L.A. because it's set in 2017. And, uh, and, and of course, listening to her Phil Collins style, uh, you know, really emotional breakup songs, 
are really um, uh, allow Michael to get over Gale. Uh, he finally gets it, right, because he hears the music, and the music makes a huge difference because it's such a powerful impact. And and uh, and then I sent it to Alicia before uh, the book was published and said, hey, here's that scene I was telling you about. Uh, is this okay? And she allowed me to use some lyrics, which is phenomenal. And then she came back and said, wow, that's exactly what I would have said in that situation. That was perfect because <laughs> I have him, <laughs> I have her talk to Michael. Uh, and then and the cool thing was for the audio book, she let me use snippets of the songs, which she owns all the rights to, wow. uh, because she's an indie musician. So it was like this beautiful, beautiful harmony. So, so music. I mean, it's funny you talked about that. Uh, music is really embedded uh, throughout <laughs> throughout the book in, in really powerful ways. Wow, it's it's it it sounds like a pretty complex story, um, but also, is there a subtext? Is there something you want people to get out of this book besides the story? Yeah, I think uh, Michael has to come to terms with destiny. Uh, he believes he's destined to be with Gail, and then he ends up falling in love with somebody else. He um, believes he is destined to use his powers to help other people, and he has to come to terms with whether or not that's the right thing to do. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of that uh, destiny. I think is is part of the of the the larger thing. I was you know you always wonder uh, you know when you're Either in a relationship or in a situation, is like was I was I meant to do this? Uh, and you sometimes question yourself, uh, and so that's that's a, that's a lot of the underlying things going on in this book. Is a Canadian werewolf different <laughs> than an American werewolf? Well, yeah, of course they apologize. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. they say yeah. sorry yeah. every time. <laughs> they say sorry and they say I'm going out now. <laughs> yeah, I'm going out now, and they say they're sorry and um, yeah. Do they? Howl and go, hey, howl. Hey. Yeah, it's like, howl, hey. Yeah, it's something like that, pretty much. No, the, the whole idea is he's a small town Canadian living in the Big Apple, and then that just became the, the series name, Canadian Werewolf. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, no, that, I think that's that's a really good image there. You know, someone that, going to such a large center in, in the country of the U.S., right? So. Yeah. There's there's so much going on there. Do you, do you have to go to those places in order? Like, so with L.A., do you have to go there and hang out to get a feeling for it? Uh, I don't have to, but I, I have. And, and a lot of, the, uh, of both those novels are based on places I've been and spent time in uh, and enjoyed and said, well, I'd love to see him here. But it was really cool. I was watching an episode of Lucifer from the latest season on Netflix the other day, and they and they showed a, a pan over Venice Beach. And I'd never, I'd been to Venice Beach, but I've never been to the neighborhood like that looks like Venice with all of the canals. And But I had uh, Michael and, uh, and Lex, uh, the woman he's falling in love with, walking uh, across the bridges of the canals. And that was based completely on me doing Google Maps and, and kind of walking. <laughs> you know how you can do the street view and you can walk through. <laughs> and as I was writing the scene, I was walking and saying, okay, here's where they are now. Oh, and they're going to stop on this bridge and have a conversation. So I wanted to know what, what it would look like from their perspective. So, so no, when I haven't been there, oh, thank goodness for places like Google Maps and Street View and stuff like that. Sure makes life easier uh, today. You <laughs> yeah. Know, yeah. You know, even, even the old manuscripts and typing and then sending it in and stuff like that by mail. It's such a difference. Oh, yeah, night and day. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, how far do you want to go with this series? I, uh, it's funny, I didn't, I didn't think it was going to be more than one book, and then I had some readers that were just like, they wanted to see more, and, and as I explored it, I, I've embedded a few things, uh, even from the beginning book, where I, I haven't answered why. Why does this one character keep showing up out of the blue? Why does he seem to always have an agenda, but we don't know what it is? So I've built a lot of these questions that I know I'll answer later on, but I'm not sure when I'm going to answer them. So right now, uh, I'm enjoying writing it. Uh, the readers that are coming back to me are looking forward. Like I've already got tons of pre-orders for the next book coming out in December that I haven't even started writing. Uh, but I think as long as I'm having fun and so long as the readers are having fun, I'm, I'm just gonna. I can probably see doing another uh, another probably half dozen. So it's real important what the readers and and people that so. Do you get involved in social media a lot and, and the aspect of people that review, review your books or things like that? 
Um, when they call me out in social media or tag me on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, uh, I definitely want to interact with them because they're, they're tagging me because they want to interact. And I want to know what they think. I want to know what, uh, how they feel. Now, reviews are, are difficult. I, I, I do read reviews, and I take them with a grain of salt. Uh, and that's both the, the five-star reviews and the one-star reviews. But oftentimes, I'll look at the one-star reviews and go, okay, how did I miss? Did I mess up because I marketed to the wrong person? Or is there something in what they're saying uh, that I can take back and make my writing better? But I do, I love that interactivity because I've been so lucky that writers I've admired when I've reached out to them, oftentimes they'll, you know, uh, be kind enough to, to reply. And and I always figure if somebody's out there and they want to engage and interact with me, then I'm lucky to have them as a reader, and I don't want I don't want to leave them behind. I want them to feel part of the process. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, but, you, don't, you know, come on, you don't get into fights with one stars? <laughs> uh, no, I've learned. I've, that's the business of writing is you don't, you don't argue with one-star reviewers. Uh, although I have. I mean, I've taken one-star reviews and made a book better. I've gone back on, on something and said, oh, my God, he's so right. I'm marketing this to the wrong people. I changed the title. I changed the cover. And I'm like, okay, now I'm the thank you, one-star review person. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, yeah. You, there's always something to learn, right? Yeah, there always is. I mean, you can always look at it that way and, uh, um, you know, hopefully get better. What is the most important you think, thing you think for a writer? So someone that's new to the to the to the business or the process of writing, what piece of advice would you say is the most important? I think one of the things that resonates well with me is um, I've, I'd always avoided um, tropey uh, horror monsters. Like I never wanted to do a vampire or a werewolf or any of the any of the tropes because I was like, well, it's all been done before. Uh, and and it's, it's the same thing as I didn't expect I'd be writing a werewolf series. Well, there's lots of werewolf series books out there before, but the reality is, is you're the best person. Uh, to write that unique book, you're you're more qualified than anyone else to write that book that you've just written, because you're you're applying your own perspective, your own point of view, your own characteristics, and so even if it is a a story that's been done before, uh, they all have been done before. It's that uniqueness of you that's going to make it special in what it is, and I think it's really important for writers to not not lose sight of 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 that. There's there's probably a story that they're passionate about wanting to tell and to focus on that and not worry so much about, oh, my God, someone else has already done this. Um, just just focus on getting that out there because there is probably an ideal reader who's just going to resonate uh, with it and, and, and love it, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, it's more about what you can do with it. I always say that even on on radio shows or podcasts, just what as many people as want can interview mark leslie but it's what i do with them that's exactly different yeah <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so classic horror classic sort of writing or modern stories which, which kind of do you lean toward i love all of them i mean i've gone back and reread classics like i only read i think it was within the last 10 years that i actually read frankenstein and give it a rating and went oh my god this is brilliant yeah, um, yeah, but there's new stuff coming out all the time that is just phenomenal, and I just, I, uh, it's always fun. I sit there and I go, "Wow, I wish I had done that." <laughs> Such a great story. <laughs> um, so, so for me, it's a combination of of wanting to to seek out new voices and and also going back and so many books I haven't uh, had the pleasure of of enjoying is like, well, it's it's lasted. There's got to be a reason. There's got to be something, and there's usually some human elements to it that just you know, still resonate to this day. I mean, one of my favorite essays is Walking by Henry David Thoreau. It's it's based on a speech he gave. And you can read that essay today and think he just wrote it last week uh, in a lot of cases of things that he talks about because it's not all that different, even though, you know, the technology is dramatically different. It was a dramatically different world. But I love when writing can do that, when it can transcend time and space like that. Yeah, I've actually just been listening to Frankenstein and Dracula myself. Uh, audio book at, at night, and it is amazing. Um, some of the old classics, I think. Uh, yeah. But the story is the key, right? It's the most important thing. Yeah, I think so. 
I think it really is. I mean, the characters and the story and all of these aspects. But yeah, I think that's uh, that's really really important because if it if it was powerful and it touched people, uh, it's probably still going to do that. How do you like people to interact with you? So what what is your contact information? Website, so, social media. What do you like? Well, I'm at uh, MarkLeslie.ca, and all my social media is there. I mean, I'm on. I've got a YouTube station. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I've got a Facebook page there, um, and it just depends on. I'm, I'm kind of playing around on all of them and experimenting on all of them. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm happy with whatever way people want. There's contact forms if people want to reach out and email me directly. I'm 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 pretty available. Signed pictures. Sign pictures, nude photos, like whenever oh, people are looking geez. for, like that's all over the place. Now we're. Oh no, wait, no, no. Liz told me I, I can't do, can't do the nude photos anymore. Sorry. Oh, so, oh. No, just just signed uh, headshots. Oh, well, I guess we take what we can, right? You know. Um, hey, so how has this um, pandemic or anything? You know, the last year, year and a half. You know, all the turmoil with. Uh, with the pandemic and and the Trump thing and the U.S. and just everything going on, um, when that's surrounding you and and in us in the world, um, does it make a difference in your writing? I haven't. Uh, I was going to say I haven't written in my fiction. I haven't written about the pandemic in my nonfiction true paranormal thing. I haven't written about the pandemic. I've written about the pandemic in parody. Uh, Liz and I have done parody music videos and songs, uh, and I've, I've covered them. So I think, uh, yeah, it has affected me in, in, the, in pandemic. Even uh, I did a, a parody of the best TV show in the universe, Cheers. Uh, I'd always want, grown up wanting to have a place like that. And uh, because I love going to bars and I love just interacting with people, and I'm a very social uh, drinker, um, uh, we have a bar at home, and so I did this cheesy parody of Cheers called Mark's Tavern. And it's basically about me being stuck at home and imagining that I'm drinking with a bunch of other me's. And I used video to actually, you know, transpose myself multiple times in the same video. And it's like serving marks since 2020. Um, and, uh, and, and so, uh, yeah, so the pandemic has definitely affected my parody writing for sure. Well, I just, but, but, but uh, being that you're a horror writer in general, when, when something um, dark is surrounding you, even you might not write about it like the pandemic itself, but if, if bad things are going on around you in your life, do, do you think that affects, do you get like a darker sense of writing or do you find that you go the other way and try to be more light? I think, well, obviously it's because I've done a lot of uh, parody and comedy. I think I've gone light to try and, if I can bring a smile to someone else's face, but uh, I'm going to probably have to face this soon because I, I started off Canadian Werewolf in 2016, time-wise. Right. And 2017 is where the latest uh, book happens. So eventually, if I keep going, <laughs> there's going to be a pandemic around them, uh, and I'm going to have to figure out how Michael's going to navigate it. Now, fortunately, what I love about this is I'm going back in time, so I know the phases of the moon based on what, what actually happened to any major events. Like even I had him appear on the Letterman, uh, David Letterman show in the first novel, and I had to set it before Letterman retired because, you know, I had to be somewhat realistic. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, um, it's interesting. It hasn't, it hasn't been the, the, the core of anything I've written yet, but I'm sure, I'm sure it will as it hopefully becomes a part of history. You were just talking about uh, beer, right? <laughs> I yeah, always uh, talk about beer. Right. You're, you're, I know you're passionate about uh, craft brews, and, and I'm, I'm a whiskey drinker myself. And I, I'm just wondering, do you bring uh, either your love of beer or other activities or hobbies or anything that, like that into uh, your stories? So uh, Liz and I have been working on a book called Spirits Untapped, Haunted Bars and Breweries, uh, for the last five years. Uh, we love researching it because we've visited so many great places. <laughs> I don't think we'll ever stop researching. But interestingly, so in, in uh, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I drink, I like whiskey, I like beer, I like all, all the things. Uh, Michael isn't in my, and so I, I have him <laughs> in fear longing in Los Angeles, getting drunk a lot and not being able to deal with it because he can't handle his booze. <laughs> so it was really fun writing a character who's so, uh, that in that aspect is so unlike me. Uh, but, um, 
Yeah, it's it's funny. I haven't um, normally. I would have a character talk about the favorite craft beer and stuff like that. Now I did. There's a. Uh, I did set it in a. In a there's a, a scene in a brewery that's based on a real place that I can't wait to visit uh, called Phantom uh, Carriage Brewing, uh, which is, has like a horror theme. And I've sent a friend of mine there. I, I, I was like, oh, after the pandemic, I can't wait to get my butt down to Southern California and, and go check that place out. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I did have um, Michael's appreciation uh, of the taste of these craft beers, even though I haven't yet enjoyed one of their beers myself. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, how much? Or what's next for you? So, you've got Fair and Longy in Los Angeles. Um, so, I know as other, as a writer myself, you probably got a lot of projects going at once. Uh, and um, kind of what is what is next for you? So, uh, the next book in the Canadian Werewolf series, which I, I basically I went and commissioned the cover while I was three quarters of the way writing Fear and Longy. <laughs> I reached out to, to my designer and like, hey, I need a book. Uh, here's the cover. It needs to look like this. The title is Fright Night's Big City because uh, I always do a play on words on a known movie or, uh, or, or book uh, for, for that series. So I've got that going on. I've got Spirits Untapped I'm still working on, and then I've got um, another nonfiction project, um, uh, Screaming Skulls and uh, haunt, like Haunted Dolls and Haunted uh, Objects. Uh, and another book for writers. I just released Wide for the Win, which is a book on publishing your, you know, publishing everywhere as a writer. Uh, and I'm going to do a, a follow-up to the seven P's of publishing success. Uh, so those are, and, oh, and, well, I've got a couple anthology projects. So, yeah, it never stops. It's like, how many am I going to get done this year? Who knows? You're taking it easy now. You're on a holiday. Yeah, I'm just taking, yeah, I'm kicking back. <laughs> yeah, you're relaxing and stuff like that. It, 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 it's it's interesting. You have a lot of haunted. Do you have you had haunted experiences yourself? Uh, only only uh, one, uh, a couple uh, of weird experiences, and that was only later on. I used to be able to say because I was I was on a lot of paranormal shows, and I go, nope, never never had an experience. And thank God because I'm a big chicken. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Liz and I had a weird encounter in a in a hotel room. Um, on our way to visit uh, a haunted sanitarium, uh, and it was just this really bizarre experience where we. I thought there was a woman in the room, and I thought I saw her and heard her. Liz thought she felt her touching her and standing over her. Uh, and it was just this weird, and we didn't find out until the morning when we were talking about it. And I'm like, oh, my God, I thought that was just a weird dream. <laughs> so, mm. yeah, it was, it was kind of a – and it wasn't, it wasn't spooky. It was just eerie, and we felt like she was just there with us. She wasn't – uh, threatening to us, but it was a really interesting experience because she is a, not a believer, right. and, and normally she's the voice of reason when I'm scared of the monsters, uh, you know, under the bed or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and this is the one time where she's like, "No, I experienced something weird too, and I can't explain it." Well, maybe it was it was the drinking, the drugs, and the threesome. Oh, it could it could have been no, but no, we no that night we hadn't done any of those three things. So. Well, you, know, you know, you wake up with a feeling. Who knows, right? <laughs> it was more than a feeling, as Boston said. <laughs> well, there, yeah. well uh, I rest my case. There you go. Says it all. Well, uh, it's been a great hour, great conversation, and I appreciate it. We will have your book and your website up on ours as well so people listening can do one click and pick it up and come find you stalk you send your letters whatever they like <laughs> naked pictures all the things yeah yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah i love those you know it's, it's, if you don't want to send them to him send them to me i'll take them um our guest today has been the author of fear and longing in los angeles and that's canadian werewolf book three mark leslie thank you for being here thank you so much alan great to chat with you and david Thanks, Mark. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.